the well-meaning parent might start to try and change their kids eating uh, and there's nothing wrong with preparing healthy meals and all that stuff. But once you start getting really restrictive and saying, oh, you can't eat that. Oh, there's no sugar in this household. That's the kid that ends up sneaking food and feeling a lot of guilt because they usually follow through with what their, what their parents are saying. And it creates all of these problems and these obsessions around eating. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 224. Today, we're talking about the anti-diet with Evelyn Triboli. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Membership, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Thank you so much for being here. I am so glad to connect with you again, dear listener. In just a moment, I am going to be talking to the amazing Evelyn Triboli, um, she's an MS and RD and the an award-winning registered dietitian with a nutrition counseling practice in Newport Beach, California. But you may know her because she is the co-author of the amazing bestseller, Intuitive Eating. And she's also written nine books, including Healthy Homestyle Cooking and Intuitive Eating. So we are going to talk about eating today. And this is interesting because a lot of us, so many of us, oh my goodness, struggle with what we eat or what our kids eat. And we may not even realize how our culture has made eating into an issue and or carbs into the enemy. And it, it really reaches down to our kids. It can hurt their relationship with food, sometimes for life. So I talk with Evelyn about how do we avoid the pitfalls of the dieting culture. Um, and I want you to listen for some important things, you know, how we as parents can help kids to trust their bodies, how dieting is the best predictor of gaining more weight and how dieting culture hurts kids. And it can be, that culture can be found in our homes and in our schools. It's a mess. So I can't wait for you to dive into this episode. I also want to let you know that soon I'm going to be opening up my powerful group coaching program, the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. And if you are interested in this transformative five-month small group, highly personalized experience, I'd love for you to email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com to learn more and I'll help you get on the wait list or maybe I'll just hop on the phone and talk to you about it. All right. I know you want to hear Evelyn, so let's dive into this episode. Evelyn, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. You have no idea. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> good. And as I told you, I am, I am so, and, and my friends are so excited for me to be talking to you. You are held in very high esteem in my neighborhood. That's awesome. I'm, I want to visit your neighborhood then when it's safe. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> yes. Come along in better times to the Ardens. Um, yeah. So you are, as I've already introduced you, uh, you're the author of Intuitive Eating, and this is your life's work. Do this incredible work. And I just want to know, 
before we dive into intuitive eating, there's so much I want to dive into here, but what, what got you passionate about this? What got you interested in helping people transform their eating habits? I will tell you, and I also want to just make sure to, to know that not only is it my life's work, it's Elise Rush's life work. She's a co-author on this. And so it was 25 years ago that our first book was published. And what was happening is we were simultaneously going through the same frustration that we were putting our patients on these beautifully dietitian approved diet, quote, lifestyles, and it, and it wasn't working. They would temporarily lose the weight and then they come back in, weight came back on, and they're blaming themselves. And it's like, you know what, this, this isn't working, this doesn't feel good. And we were going through this place of cognitive dissonance. And I, and I see this happening with a lot of health professionals as they, as they start to embrace our work and also with the patients that I currently work with. It's like, can this, is there really a different way? And the answer is yes. So what we did is we went into the research to see how can we define a better way of eating and connecting with ourselves and also what's going on in the, you know, in, in, in the consumer world. And so putting that all together combined with our own experiences, we came up with these 10 principles and we actually got really lucky because it was originally just a book book and our publisher said you know we'd like you to turn this into steps or more how to and that's how it turned into 10 principles as opposed to just 10 chapters in a in a book and the beauty of that and the luck that we didn't know we had is a researcher read our book and it was very meaningful to her because her um, I'm not gonna go into her personal story but she thought this this has some merit i want to see can we identify who the intuitive eater is and does it make a difference in someone's quality of life and their outcomes the answer was yes yes and yes and that researcher is tracy tilka and she's gone on to validate this assessment and what's so important and significant about this is it's allowed research to flourish so when we first published our book and our idea we can say it was research inspired but now we can say there's over 125 studies on our work showing showing benefits. So part of, I, I would say to answer your question more directly, our big reason for doing this, uh, the way I describe it now, is to put an end to unnecessary suffering, you know, because people would start to get anxious, just thinking about what to eat, how to eat, and about their bodies and all these things. And what's happened now, because in 25 years, a lot has changed. There's more research now on weight stigma and fat phobia. We now have the health at every size uh, movement that is really also gaining traction. And so we just know there's a better way to be in relationship with our bodies. We're humans, you know, mm -hmm. humans come in different sizes, just like shoe sizes. And with my younger patients, actually some of my uh, older patients too, I'll say we're all like puppies, you know, there's little tiny chihuahuas and no one's saying that there's <laughs> anything wrong with or better about a chihuahua versus a big bulldog mass dog. You know, we're not saying, hey, bulldog, you gotta be like a chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> you got to change your size or you're not, you don't have the dignity to be exist in the puppy kingdom. And it sounds a little silly when I say it that way, but when you look at all through all different types of um, uh, animals and whatnot, there is, there is diversity, you know, so that that's part of our message also. And that's how this book has really been updated. We talk about weight stigma. We talk about mm -hmm. diet culture and these things that are influencing us. And I'll tell you the thing that breaks my heart, you know, working with parents and the, and the kids is the, how diet culture is in our school. How, you know, one of my, the things that just strikes me is this, this comes from my, I have a pretty active Instagram account and there was a mom describing how she gave her her little boy, a kindergartner, packed a cookie, a homemade cookie in his lunch. And the teacher said, oh, this is bad. And now he's afraid to eat cookies. And what his mom sent him to school. 
and that's diet culture and there's there's no place for that in here you know so that's why we're out to change the world i'm actually out to make a difference in that in that way there's another way to relate with our food you know I, well, I think, I think you are. Is, is it something that you came, it was something that was something personal for you? I mean, did you, did you go into dietary, becoming, I guess, a dietitian and, and that stuff because you had personally struggled with You know, it's, no, my story is very unusual. <laughs> I'll tell you the backstory of it. My interest in nutrition grew because I was a runner at a time when there weren't girls track teams, not very commonly. So I ran on the boys track team and I was out to beat the boys. And nice. <laughs> I was fascinated. What can I eat to beat the boys? And at that time, you didn't get that much nutrition information. The internet did not exist back then. That's how old school this was. And so I got into this idea of eating for performance. I got into a lot of fad eating as a result of it, you know, mm-hmm. and I, nutrition wasn't even my first major. My first major was physical education. I wanted to be a coach and because of public funding at the time it became very clear I was not going to get a job so I saw this nutrition book in the student university center and I waited for the student and it was at a we were at a like a cafeteria and the student came back was the owner of the book and I asked her about nutrition and she happened to be president of the student dietetic association so I went to one of their meetings took a class and fell in love with uh, the field. So my my so the part that's unusual is is performance. The other part that's really unusual, I think, this is hilarious when I look back on it. I I, I have always viewed my body as 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 a, a function, hmm. as opposed to uh, appearance. And there's a really great mantra by a group of uh, two researchers called they, they run this organization called Beauty Redefined, and they say our body is an instrument, not an ornament. And so when I was in high school, just about every Friday at the end of track, the boys and I we'd, we'd sit in a circle with our feet pointing inward, kind of like a big old daisy flower, and we would look and compare who's got the most veins because it was a sign of vascularization that we're getting fit. So you can see I came into this with a completely different mindset, and yet at the same time I grew up with a dieting mom. And I will tell you, I'm really lucky she didn't project that onto me, but um, sadly, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and died of ovarian cancer three years from her diagnosis. And I will never forget her saying, wow, all these years spent dieting, what what a waste, you know? And that mm-hmm. was just a profound, profound, sad, sad moment. So I've had personal experiences with diet culture, but I'm lucky to some degree I escaped it, but I was definitely affected by it, you know? Oh, wow. Wow. And so, and you talk about diet culture and I think, you know, every, the listener, oh, oddly enough, there's a bumblebee under my foot. Everybody, there's strange things happening. No, we're going to just keep this in, keep it real. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, hello, Mr. B. (laughs) Here in the podcast today. Um, You know, we can all agree that diet culture sounds unhealthy. Like diet culture sounds um, like something that might be punishing and and restrictive and and not so healthy. And I think today we talk a lot about wellness. We talk about like really healthy eating and and eating uh, for fuel and things like that. And that all feels a lot more wholesome. But I I think that you have some some issues with that too. Are there some ways that there some of the way same issues have kind of been pervasive in our new sort of culture of like 
really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, a lot, I know a lot of my listeners are pretty crunchy moms and they're really interested in whole foods and not a lot of grains and all those things. So, mm-hmm. so tell me a little bit more about, about diet culture and what it's kind of morphed into now and, and what are, what are the healthy ways of looking at, looking at this versus the, the unhealthy, is there an unhealthy side to the, or yeah, some of that? I have many ways that I look at this and you know, it's so interesting last year, there was a, a New York times op-ed piece that went viral and it, 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 it was about this very thing. The question that you're asking that, uh, I'm laughing because I'm seeing you trying to get the beat out. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a serious topic. I I'm realize. pushing him away. Okay. Um, so what, what this viral epid piece talked about is how diet culture has now changed the language. It's gotten very smart like a virus. So now instead of saying diet, they'll say things like wellness and living your best life and keto lifestyle and things like this. And here's what's problematic about this. And by the way, let me be really clear before we go down this this line of discussion, that what I'm about to say is directed toward the perpetrators of this, the industries of this that are making money uh, and, 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 and saying things that just really aren't true. And because of diet culture, a lot of people, a lot of people think that in order to be healthy, they need to change the size of their their body, you know? So this is not to shame anyone who has those desires or engaged in those things. And I've worked with a lot of families. I've never met a parent yet who doesn't have really good intentions with their family. So as I'm about to describe some of these things, it's not to cast shame, but it's to start looking at, huh, is the way that I'm going about this in my family, am I helping the health of my family, or might I be contributing to a problem? Uh, and again, it's not to blame the parents. And so what we have to remember, we have to step back and say, you know, what is health to begin with? And health is more than what we eat. Health includes our mental health, our psychological health, our social health, our spiritual health, all those kinds of things. And they're very, very significant. And so where this gets really, where this has really gotten muddled is there's this idea out there that health is reflected by the size of your body. And often when I have these conversations with someone, if they're hearing this for the first time, they, they, sound, they think like I'm a heretic. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? And then as I start breaking down, there is a body of research showing this, that one, dieting in of itself by whatever name you want to call it, but especially if we're talking about any way of eating for the purpose of shrinking your body, it actually is the best predictor of gaining more weight. Study after study has shown this over and over and over again. Um, that's number one. So it's not effective. It actually seems to be causing the very opposite of what you're trying to do. But what's really important is that it contributes to to weight stigma, this idea that your body uh, is is your fault if it's a certain size or not a certain size. It also contributes to weight cycling. Weight cycling is, is when someone keeps gaining and losing weight, gaining and losing weight. And weight cycling has its own health outcomes that are negative. The same thing with, with, with weight stigma. And then when we start looking at the research about the risk of dieting and what that does for increasing risk of eating disorders, it's very clear. And what's really scary to me is that eating disorders have doubled in the last time period in which they were, which they have looked at. And that's a shocking figure. And part of the reason I think we're seeing such an escalation in eating disorders is that diet culture has been normalized. 
skipping eating has become normalized. Eating disorder behaviors have become normalized because of our culture. And in the way that I see this play out, most people start off with really good intentions. They'll say, I just want to be healthy. Nothing wrong with wanting be healthy. But when you start going down um, this path in, in such a way in which it causes you to worry all the time about your body, you're worried all the time about the foods that you're eating in your body. Is this a good food? Is this a bad food? Where food itself has inherently no morality, but it's perceived that way. What it ends up doing it takes you out of your own life. It takes you out of the present moment, you know? And so you're going out to, let's say, uh, lunch with a bunch of other moms. And uh, in, instead of being excited about connecting with the moms, you're worried about, oh my gosh, what am I gonna eat? You know, is this gonna blow my diet? Uh, what's this gonna do to my, to my body? So that's how this ends up causing a lot, of, a lot of problem. And when I have sessions with patients, you know, where I see this play out in families, if mom or dad is dieting, it's common that both of them are, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, one of the signs when you're not getting enough to eat is you get a little cranky. You know, you heard the word hangry and you might find yourself uh, yelling at your kids and you're not, that doesn't, and that's not aligned with your family values and how you want to raise your kid, but your, your, your patience gets so, so short and looking at those kinds of aspects or now you see your little five-year-old worrying about their body, you know, that, that breaks my heart. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the issue uh, with this whole wellness culture. It sounds nice, but what it is, is the dieting industry is morphing itself to sound politically correct. You know, Weight Watchers changed its name to WW because they want to get away from the idea of dieting, but it's still a diet, still a diet, you know? Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. We are supported by the Grassroots Farmers Cooperative. We are all doing our best to slow down and reconnect to ourselves, our communities, and the planet. And we know how important it is to be intentional with what we feed our bodies and to make sure that it's friendly to the planet, which is why I source my meat from Grassroots Farmers Cooperative. Grassroots Farmers Cooperative has this commitment to nutritious meals, and they know that it starts with the practice of regenerative agriculture, which means that more nutrients in, in the, are in the plants that are eaten by the animals. And all of their animals are 100% pasture-raised, roaming-free on U.S.-based small-scale family farms. And the end result is tastier meat with higher levels of omegas, vitamins, and minerals. It's amazing. They are committed to transparency and they even have QR codes that on each piece of meat that let me trace the meat back to its original farm for that total transparency delivered straight to my door. No trips to the store, which is impossible right now, frankly. Grassroots Farmers Cooperative is also committed to paying their workers a livable wage so they can focus on maintaining the highest standards from pasture to plate. Order Grassroots Co-op today to get high-quality, nutrient-rich meat delivered straight to your door. No subscription required. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer. $40 off plus free shipping. Go to grassrootscoop.com hunter to get the full details and order today. Go now. That's grassroots, C-O-O-P, dot com slash h-u-n-t-e-r 
isn't it is it true though that that you know uh, uh, they're being very overweight is pretty unhealthy though right like we know that it's associated with a bunch of problems as far as you know health problems and things like that so i mean imagine there are you know there are like important times when one wants to lose weight actually i had a a client who was talking to me about this, she, she was saying that she wanted to lose weight because she has, she wants to be able to have a surgery for a, like a, her, some, something in her stomach, like, and they, she has to lose weight to be able to have the surgery or something like that. It, um, and it was something that was, the surgery was something unrelated to weight, but she had to be able to do it anyway. But just, uh, just to play the devil's advocate to what you're saying, like, isn't it unhealthy to be pretty obese? Well, see, and that's, that's the dominant belief in the culture right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think you're asking a very good question. I get this asked all the time, even when I present all the data. And you used a very important word, and you said association. It is true that higher weight bodies, there's associations with some chronic diseases. But it's also true that the studies that look at all of this, they don't uh, account for very important factors, also known as confounders. Like if someone has a history of childhood trauma, this is really sad. There's a thing called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And if a child has been exposed, and there's 10 of them that they identify. And if a child has been exposed at, now you're an adult, but you were exposed as a child to six or more, that cuts off your life expectancy by 20 years. So instead of living to 80, you live to 60. That increases your risk of chronic diseases, including depression. I have not seen a study yet that when they're looking at risk and weight, that they actually look at these ACEs at the adverse childhood experiences. That's one example. There was one really, really good study looking at the the problem of isolation and quality of relationships. And this researcher who's a psychologist said, this is our public health issue. And so they took all the research on that and lined it up with these other things like cigarette smoking and weight. And I forget, there's about 10 other things. And weight ended up being very, very low in terms of risk of mortality and morbidity when you factor in all these other things. And so that's the part that I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their mind around because we've been taught this. We, I was taught this in grad school. In fact, a lot of the health professionals I teach will say, why did I learn this in the university? Why did I learn this in my, my internship? And sometimes I say, why weren't you asking questions? But the truth is when you're a student, you don't know to ask these kinds of questions. The data, the data are, are out there. And so what happens is this type of research has a name it's called epidemiological research that shows association and what it tends to do is all it does is is kind of reify a belief system so let me give you an example the way i like to break it down with my patients it is true that in the summertime there are more drownings from people swimming that's true it is also true that in the summertime people eat more ice cream it is also true we can say that eating ice cream is associated with drownings And no one is saying that eating ice cream causes drowning. In fact, when I talk about that, people laugh like, oh, that's so silly. It's like, yeah, it is, huh? And yet, if we instead we use the word weight, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, that's true. You know, so it's an association, not a causation. And so it's also very political. You know, back in 2013, the American Medical Association uh, asked their research committee this question, can we say that being in a higher weight is a disease, so-called obesity, is that a disease? And the researchers looked and looked and looked at all the data and they said, you know, we don't have enough research to, to suggest that. 
And the AMA, the American Medical Association, said, we don't like that. We're, we're going to take it to a vote. And they outvoted the research committee, you know? And so what's happening now that I find is really making this challenging. Before, diet culture was just like the weight loss industry and the fitness industry and the beauty industry. But now there's health professionals that are also promoting it. And then I'll have a patient come in and they'll say, but my doctor or my healthcare provider or my other dietitian. And so now they're feeling, you know, like what, what, what is true? And that's why I say we need to look at all the research and what is true. And so that's when I sometimes will talk about a phenomenon called the Simmelweis reflex. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It was newer to me. I, I learned it from another physician. And so it's interesting that we're talking about this right now in the time of Corona. So Simulvi the Simulvice reflex is named after a doctor, a doctor who discovered that if you wash your hands, it can save lives. And women were dying in, in childbirth. And he was observing this uh, because at that time, doctors would go from doing autopsies on obviously dead bodies and then uh, giving birth and women would die. He saw this connection, did a small study with hand washing and changed the outcomes dramatically. This is back in the 1600s before they discovered um, germs cause death and germs cause illness. So he was, he wrote papers on it. He lectured about it and he was laughed out of medicine. He was literally laughed out of medicine and they were saying, oh, it's ridiculous. Don't be absurd. We're gentlemen. We don't kill our patients. We're gentlemen. We don't need to wash our hands. That is what was ended up happening. And so it was uh, a few decades later that Louis Pasteur came out with germ theory. And so now the Simmelweis reflex is named after him that when new research comes out that challenges the dominant belief system or the dominant paradigm, it's met with a lot of um, resistance mm -hmm. and, and even, even ridicule. And our, probably our most recent example of that was in the 80s, when up until the 80s, if someone had an ulcer, they thought, oh, you caused it. It's your lifestyle, it's what you're eating. And the, the two, two physicians, scientists, uh, discovered that, no, it's a bacteria that does it. They, had called, they, did, they, they found what it was, H.Y. pylori. And the, the elite doctors of the time said, also thought that that was really ridiculous. And they would publish some research, but it was drowned out by the body of research looking at doing surgeries for bleeding ulcers and all these other kinds of things or taking antacids. And finally, when one of the doctors actually isolated that bacteria and... <laughs> swallowed it himself and gave himself a disease and then cured oh it. I know, oh right? That's how much resistance he was met by. And then they ended up getting, I think it was in 2005, the Nobel Prize Award in medicine for discovering this. It's completely changed medicine. Patients used to get their, their part of their stomachs cut off for part of this or told, oh, you got to change your lifestyle. You got to eat the bland diet. So, you know, we have seen this happen. I think that's what we're seeing right now. And then, so that's from a medical scientific standpoint. If we start taking a look at a societal aspect, there's a really good book and it's disturbing to read. And it's called... Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Roots of Fat Phobia, and it's written by an academic out of uh, UCI, University of uh, Irvine in California. And what she systematically shows is starting around the 1500s that this is really the byproduct of, of racism and patriarchy and, and some forms of, of religion in terms of how people should be living. This is before there was any, even any health connection. That this was a, a belief that is systematically been, been handed down through, through the culture. And it's, it's, it's so when you, when you combine all of this, it's, it's why we're kind of in the mess that we're in today, you know? Wow. Wow. I know. So wow. There's, right. There's, there's a lot there. I might have to like re-listen back to what you said to, to take it all in. I mean, that, that is a lot there. And then there is, you know, I, I know the concept of 
health at any size and, and all that stuff. And I, and I absolutely believe that people can be healthy at all kinds of different sizes, do be really active and things like that. But then part of me, part of me worries about that. You know, actually my, my, my husband worries about that. Like we have a daughter who's, uh, he has, um, he has, uh, had issues after having a, um, uh, an intent, he had, um, appendicitis and liquid IV for many days. And since then he's had, um, for, since then he's had a lot of digestive issues. He, he can't mm. digest things. And so we've been in a thing to try to figure out and he can't eat gluten anymore. He can't, it really makes his, his, it throws his system for a loop and, and he can't, but he, so he's become very sensitive and aware of the rest of us eating gluten. In the house. Uh, we yeah. like our bread. We're happy with it. But he's, uh, he's, you know, he's a, a little worried about, um, you know, if one daughter, is, you know, just as she's changing, just, you know, maybe, you know, getting a little chubbier than she was as her at her young age and seeing the connection with maybe eating bagels and whatever and is is worried about that and is wondering, you know, and I'm kind of saying, well, I, I, I don't know, I, I think you maybe... We both see that he's very sensitive to that. He's really aware of that. He's really sensitive to that. So just wondering if you think about a situation like that and knowing that we all are in the soup of this culture that is, as you just described, how how would you say are some ways we can start to approach the situation in a healthier, healthier manner and way of thinking and mindset? Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. There's so much anxiety right now, and we all need someone to talk to. And I can imagine for most of us right now, there's something interfering with our happiness and preventing us from achieving our goals. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communication in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And it's available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and you don't ever have to sit in that in-person traditional therapy waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. I popped over and read this one recently. Connie is wonderful. I felt comfortable opening up to her and she is very insightful. Our sessions have really helped. Visit betterhelp.com hunter. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Mindful Mama podcast listeners to get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash hunter. 
Yeah, I want to answer that, but I want to go back and reframe something you said because it's 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 significant, uh, subtle distinction. So health at every size, not healthy at every size. And what health at every size is actually a social justice movement saying, we regardless of the size of your body, regardless of the color of your skin, your gender base, is you should be able to have access to health care. That sounds like basic. I haven't, I haven't anyone disagreed with me with yet. But what the problem is, is because there's so much prejudice going on now about bodies, um, there's been some really sad people get diagnosed. Some large body, if they if they sprain their ankle going to the doctor, they want to be able to get a, like an X-ray. Or if it turns out it's a broken ankle, they want to get the cast and not just have a doctor say, "Oh, uh, you just need to lose weight and your ankle will feel better." I cannot tell you how many stories I've had with this, and there's sadly even a patient that um, that died from misdiagnosis. She was in a large body, feeling really awful. This is out of Canada. In fact, we wrote, we wrote up her story in our, our forthcoming book. And she finally, after several years, went to a doctor who did a proper evaluation and medical workup and just didn't say lose weight. That's what the other doctors told her. It turned out she had a form of cancer that was not yeah. treatable in the stage it was in, and she died days later. And it was in her obituary. She didn't want anyone else to suffer this fate, which is why she talked about this. And I thought, you know what? We're going to use that in our book as, as an example. And this is not about pointing fingers at any doc. I know a lot of really, really good doctors, but this weight stigma and this bias is really problematic. And so back to your question then, what do we do? Well, we need to change the, the culture, you know? Uh, sometimes what, what's going on, the parents will say, oh, I'm worried about my kid's weight. But when we start saying, your child is wrong, because of the size of the body. Now, I've never met a parent that actually has ever said that directly, but that's the message they get and they internalize it. And so then the well-meaning parent might start to try and change their kids eating. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with preparing healthy meals and all that stuff. But once you start getting really restrictive and saying, oh, you can't eat that, oh, there's no sugar in this household, that's the kid that ends up sneaking food and feeling a lot of guilt because they usually follow through with what their, what their parents are saying. And it creates all of these problems and these obsessions around eating and I can't tell you how often I've I've seen that so instead what we want to talk about and by the way we can pursue health without pursuing changing our body size we can engage in healthy behaviors that are sustainable that's awesome nothing wrong with that that's not going to cause harm yeah we can move our body and have more activity we can add you know more fruits and vegetables those things are totally fine but the moment the agenda is we need to change the size of your body that becomes problematic and, and again we have this body of research showing that it's not sustainable there's not a single study yet that shows it's sustainable for a long term and if there's listeners out there saying oh yeah but there's this study we have to look at how long were these studies done most of them are short term and we need these studies to be at minimum two years, five years is actually the better, better mark to actually see are they effective and do they cause harm. And I think one of the most interesting studies that sort of looked at this, um, they said, you know, maybe, maybe people gain more weight uh, at, from dieting, not because dieting, but they're just genetically loaded to do that. So they took 2,000 twins, in other words, 4,000 people and followed them for five years. And what they found is that dieting independent of genetics predicted weight gain. 
in a dose response manner, the more that someone dieted. So that's the part that people have trouble wrapping their head around because they're getting this message that you have to be a certain weight to be healthy or that you can look at a person and know the state of their health and you really, you really can't. And so what's happening, there's a lot of fat shaming that's going on and that's not healthy for the mind either. That creates a lot of a lot of stress and so what we need to do is first of all realize that you know when we are pre-adolescents and especially with girls we're going to gain a lot of weight appropriately so to help support the development of our bodies um i will never forget this is a sad story i saw a 12 year old girl in my office because at the age of 11, right at the end of her sixth grade, she went to her pediatrician and the pediatrician said, you are one pound away from obesity. Using those words, the parents were present and that scared the bejeebers out of that kid because there's so much weight stigma going on. And so what ended up happening is she fell into a horrible, horrible eating disorder. And by the time I saw her in the fall, it was like September, school had started. She, I was not able to work with her. I think I saw her once or twice. She just needed a higher level of care. That's the kind of damage that ends up happening when we have this kind of weight stigma so there's like two issues is how do we change the culture how do we change the system that's one of the issues and then on a family level okay what do I do for my family what do I do for my kids and so part of what I like to really uh, suggest is or, and then really endorse this idea that all bodies deserve dignity and respect and that includes how we talk about our bodies that we don't talk about or we don't compare our bodies about how someone's body looks and those types of things. And we don't also do that around food, like, oh my God, I was so bad eating any fill in the blank of whatever the food is. And what's fascinating right now in our culture is looking at the amount of shaming that goes on around eating. It's like, oh my God, eating is, is one of the joys mm -hmm. in life. Eating is supposed to be pleasurable. And now we're getting all judgy around that as if it's a religion, as if you're violating a moral code and honestly unless you killed someone to get that food you know guilt has place in eating so instead how can we help our families our kids and yourselves connect to your own where our body has the wisdom to figure this stuff out but the more we start creating doubt and rules around eating we create a bigger disconnect on what's going on in the body you know yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So if for parents who are listening saying, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want this for my kids. How, yeah. what are, I would love for you to share some of the principles. How can we help kids and then teens become more intuitive eaters? And then what does it mean to be an intuitive eater? What are some of those things? Yeah, let's, let's start with that. Or even start with this idea that this idea of changing culture is daunting. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me, Evelyn? <laughs> But this idea that you can change the legacy of diet culture at your kitchen table in your family, you can actually stop that. And when I talk to a lot of moms, especially, that gives them a lot of meaning because it's like, oh my God, I don't want my kids to suffer the way I've been suffering, you know? So we can mm -hmm. stop the culture uh, at our own kitchen tables. And so what that looks like, one of the first principles of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. You know, and that includes diet culture and recognizing it and calling it out. And so if you're counting macros, that's an example of, of diet culture. If you're calling foods good or bad, you know, that's an example. And again, this is not to judge you. It's just to start to recognize, oh, I think I might be doing some of those things. Like, okay, so let's see what we can do to start unlearning some of those aspects. And so ultimately what an intuitive eater is, is basically you're the expert of your own body. You know, is it, intuitive eating is a self care eating framework with with 10 principles and it's it's an inner dynamic process you know that includes uh, rational thought 
instinct and emotion. So we've got this ability. And what ends up happening is trust gets violated. So there was a really interesting study on kids, adolescent kids, and they, they asked this question, can we apply intuitive eating to kids? Does this assessment model work for them? And the answer was yes, but. And it made me sad what the but was. And the but was, is that these kids felt uh, in order to honor hunger and honor fullness and aim for satisfaction in eating, those are three principles, uh, they needed to trust that their body works. And what's happening right now, there's so much fear mongering going on that it creates doubt. And so what parents can do is to help with this trust. That one, one, one model beating I'm really a huge fan of, and then it's influenced our work a lot, is the work by Ellen Satter, and she has the division of labor, or it's called eating competency, and that is the responsibility of the parents is to provide the food. You decide what you're going to have for dinner or snacks, and the responsibility of the of the of the child is how much they're going to eat, if at all. In other words, that you trust that their little cues can self-regulate, and it's really a beautiful thing. But where this gets tricky is if, as a parent, you doubt your own body. You're not sure about it. It's like, well, this might sound good for your readers, Evelyn. I love the idea, but I, I don't know. I think there's something broken about my body. And I know, and it makes me, it makes me sad. And I hear these stories all the time because trust is missing. And so if a parent is missing trust, it gets a little harder to, uh, to, 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 to cultivate that for their kids. But I'll tell you where I've really seen it manifest, and it's really beautiful. These are for the young parents out there, or parents-to-be, and that is through the process of baby-led weaning. Mm. And it's basically intuitive eating for babies. Babies are the natural intuitive eater. In fact, when we wrote intuitive eating, a lot of our models based on the work from kids, that kids naturally self-regulate. And there was this famous study published in the New England Journal of Medicine where the researchers said, it was a, a study on toddlers. And if you look at a kid's eating, it's a parent's worst nightmare. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And, and they, they say, but if you look at a kid's eating over a week or two, it evens out. They naturally self-regulate. And so the part of the message is we need to get it out of the way. And what, what this particular research has shown, L. L. Birch, who's now retired, but the more we interfere with our kids eating, the more we try and control their eating, the bigger of a problem it ends up creating. It ends up creating the very thing that you're trying not to have happen where a kid becomes obsessed about a food that they can't have and so on. So instead, we give them this autonomy is to, to self-regulate. You decide what's on the, on the kitchen table and they decide the how much. And so with baby-led weaning, what that is, for those that are not familiar, is when you're transitioning from breast milk or if you're, if you're formula feeding, you're transitioning to solids, that instead of using you know, baby food where you're spoon feeding the baby, is that you're using whole foods cut up uh, appropriate to the age of the baby. This usually starts around age six months and the babies uh, feed themselves. And I gotta tell you, I watched, I, I was telling you earlier, I've got two grandbabies. One is only days old, but the other, she's now two. And to watch her do this, my daughter would send me so many pictures and videos. I mean, this, my daughter, granddaughter would have food all over her face <laughs> food all over the floor uh but ultimately she, she was getting food in the mouth and to watch your your kid grow and to self-regulate like that it, it, it it's trust building for the parent as well so it's it's really rather cool but it also helps the development in terms of eye hand coordination all kinds of things and there's actually i'll go ahead and say it there's um 
an Instagram account that I highly recommend called Feeding Littles. I think they have almost a million followers now. And it's led by a team. It's a dietitian and an occupational therapist. And the dietitian is trained in intuitive eating. But all they do is, is, is they, on, their, on their videos and their stories, they show all of these kids doing this baby-led weaning. And so their account is very <laughs> helpful to launch. And so what I've seen that do for parents is it starts to cultivate trust. And I've also seen it with their, with, with older kids too. And so a story I like to tell was when my son was a toddler, he was like two. And I, I don't know why I remember very clear memory. I, I made a really good dinner. Like I actually made all my favorite foods. That's probably why I remember. So it was like lasagna, I think a salad and, a, and carrot cake and the carrot cake homemade. And I served everyone the same amount, his sister and his dad and myself. And when he finished his cake, he says, more mommy. And I have to tell you, the mommy and me was thinking, dude, you've had enough. That was an honest thought that I had, but I had a yeah. witness thought, thank goodness. And then I, I, and then the intuitive eater part of me, professionals like, let the kid eat cake. So I cut him another same size piece, gave it to him. You know what he did? He mm -hmm. ate one bite, done mommy. <laughs> he went <laughs> off and played. So when you start to see these kinds of things over and over again, you start to realize, yeah, we, we have the ability to do this, you know? And so the question is, is for your listeners out there is what's one step maybe that they can take you don't have to dive all in you know but what's one step that you can take toward facilitating this autonomy in your in your kid and what this ends up doing it strengthens them as they as they grow up and start hearing all these fad diets and diet culture that you know what your body has the truth within what is your body telling you it's a beautiful trust that we end up teaching it's a gift we give to our kids and our family you know, I did baby led weaning with my second daughter and it was, it was fabulous. It was wonderful. I remember like the big piece of steamed broccoli that she was just like mashing at her face, which was fabulous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved it a lot. I have one, I, I have one place I want to push back with you here. Although I, in every way I agree in so many ways, like when I got to trust my own body and ate more into, I mean, it's just so much better I feel like at this point in my life, I actually am the intuitive eater you talk about. But one thing, uh, the place I want to push back on is, and I think about this like in the French culture, like aren't there places where, you know, kid, like certain foods that are great for you, like broccoli or whatever that, you know, when kids are toddlers, they naturally have an aversion towards vegetables. And, and so in our house, we had a rule of, you don't have to eat it, but you must taste it to kind of help develop their palate mm -hmm. of like just tasting all kinds of different foods. But we said, you can spit it out completely when you're done. Like you're totally welcome to spit it out. Yeah. Completely. And we've seen, you know, anecdotally in my own experience that our kids are way more adventurous eaters than some other kids we've experienced. So what would you say to that piece? Well, isn't that awesome? Well, first of all, I, I pretty much agree with that. And so this, what you're talking about is exposure and it can take up to 10 to 20 times of seeing a food and trying a food before a kid's going to embrace it. So again, as a parent, you can, you can serve all the broccoli that, that you want, you know? And so then the question is maybe, and this is a very nuanced thing. Do I force my kid to take a bite? And one of the things I like to really emphasize in the family eating dynamic is that eating should be a time when we all come together and not a source of stress, not the inquisition about what's going on with their homework, although when they're toddlers, you're not even doing that, you know? Um, and what, what, what happens is what's really powerful is when they watch you, when they watch you eating the broccoli, when they watch dad eating the broccoli or whoever, do you know that that becomes part of it and not getting into power struggles. But I completely agree we need to have exposures to these foods. And if you, if you 
get your kids involved in the cooking or the selection. One of the things my kids loved is when they go grocery shopping with me, it's like, okay, you get to pick the vegetables we're having tonight or for this week. And that gave them this power. Like, yeah, they get to pick what mom and dad and everyone's having and they, they kind of just get, get into it. So part of it is what is your own relationship with the food? And are you bringing stress to the table or is it joy to the table or something in between? And by the way, I don't want to imply any kind of and sometimes the best you can do is get the dinner on and then be done, you know, um, and that's and that's okay too. So I agree, we need to have these uh, uh, exposures. And sometimes when you're working with kids with picky eating, um, my assistant happens to work for a, an occupational therapist, and one of the things they do for exposure is something you were suggesting. Uh, and I'm not saying you do this at your own home, but they would, they want the kids just to start touching the food. They start touching it with their hands. That's one exposure. And at some point they do a game called target practice where they get this bullseye and a big plastic sheet and they have the kids put the food in their mouth and then try to hit the target. And so it's a game that they love, <laughs> right? And so what it's doing is it's getting them just to have it in their mouth to have the experience of that. And, and, and I want to stress, I'm not saying you do this at the family table, but, <laughs> but having this exposure is really, is really helpful. Otherwise you can end up reinforcing picky eating. If all you do is serve, you know, the same two foods that, that Johnny likes, it kind of reinforces that. So yeah, yeah, yeah I don't yeah, have yeah. a lot of agreement on that for the most part. And probably our own example. I mean, I know that kids obviously pick up on every single thing that we do that we we don't want them to pick up on all our bad habits. So I think probably what the way the work, your work can come to parents in particular is probably some of the best things. And you talk about, you talk about helping people regain satisfaction. And you also talk about, um, coping with emotions, you know, coping with emotions and, and also regaining hunger. I mean, there's so much I could, I could probably have a part two on this, but um, <laughs> where, where do you think, and in, in, as we sort of have, we allow time to, to wrap up for this, but what do you think uh, as you, you think about the, the scope of what you offer in the work that you do are some of the most important principles to, to look at maybe first? That's a really good question. So, you know, it's funny. I never go in order with the principles, but when you write a book, you need to go in order. Uh, you know, for, for yourself, for any adult, I, I like to start with aiming for satisfaction because it's so personal. Like, well, what does a satisfying meal taste like to you? What does a satisfying meal feel like to you? What kinds of conditions uh, contribute to a satisfying meal? So imagine right now your favorite dinner. Just your favorite dinner. Someone else makes it. That makes it part of my favorite, by the way, when someone else does the cooking. Uh, but now imagine that same favorite meal and you are in a fight with your husband or your partner. And are you going to enjoy it? Probably not. And I know that that sounds like obvious. You don't want to be in a fight. But, but looking at all these different kinds of conditions and because it's so personal, it helps you get connected. You know, is it satisfying to start a meal when you're in this place of what I call primal hunger? It's like, I'm so hungry. I'm going to eat you. <laughs> kind of hunger and I would say usually not because there's an urgency and intensity like just give me the food and there's a tendency to eat fast or is it more satisfying to start with kind of a pleasant or a gentle hunger uh, and when you finish the level of fullness ultimately it's not satisfying to feel too full and it's not satisfying to, to under eat because you're hungry 
you know, an hour again. So that's a beautiful place to start with that. But one of the things I like to stress with intuitive eating, I know we didn't have time to go into all 10 principles, but it is 10 principles. And the last principle is on your health with gentle nutrition. So we are concerned with, with health and nutrition. We're, we're both dietitians that wrote this book with master's degrees in, in, um, nutrition science. So it's all dynamically integrated. And so what I say is that when someone is, uh, when their relationship with food is fraught with anxiety, the focus needs to be on the healing of it. How can I heal my relationship with food? And when that's kind of in place, then we go more towards, okay, how can we honor our health with gentle nutrition? And this idea that our body doesn't punch a time clock, you don't suddenly get a nutrition deficiency over one day or one week's worth of eating. It's what's the pattern of eating that you're doing? And how can we make that kind of eating uh, enjoyable and not angsty rigid, rid, not angst ridden, nor nor rigid. You know, there's a way to integrate all of these things. And sometimes, because there's this misunderstanding that intuitive eating is all about a food party. You know, if you go on Instagram and look at the hashtag intuitive eating, you see ding dong, you see um, you see cupcakes and donuts and ding dongs and all these kinds of desserty things. And those are people celebrating the freedom with eating. And then yay. <laughs> There's still nine other principles involved. So sometimes people have this misunderstanding that intuitive eating is a free-for-all and that's what's going to happen to them. It's like, oh, if I did that, I would never stop eating. It's like, no, there's actually this really growing, this fascinating area of research called habituation. The more you're exposed to food, it takes away the excitement. You still like it, but it's not a big deal. And we've seen, you know, with the, with the coronavirus thing, with the shopping phenomenon, empty shelves in the grocery store. And now that food has the perception of scarcity, even though we know it's in the food supply, there's been a lot of stories on that. You see people focusing more on food and toilet paper for that matter and, and hoarding it. And that's what happens from a dieting mindset, you know? So there's, there's so much to this. Yeah, there is so much to this, Evelyn. We barely scratched the surface. I have this whole <laughs> list of other things that I wanted to oh, talk no. to you about. So I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that, uh, we, you know, I would invite the listener to check out Evelyn's work, check out intuitive eating. If you're curious about this, cause it, it seems to me the healthiest, you know, I don't talk about, I don't have, I've never had anyone on the podcast to talk about, eat, or I've talked about maybe nutrition for families, but barely ever. This is something that we've touched on very rarely on this podcast, but I mm-hmm. think that your work and I, want, I just want to thank you for it, the work that you're doing to change people's minds and to help people to be more aware and sensitive and, uh, and just knowing and understanding and living from their whole body yes. is so valuable. I, I, you know, I intuitively got all of these things that you said in, in so many ways, because this was almost, this was like a process that I went through myself. I had some unhealthy eating habits and then through the process of mindfulness and, and yoga and just get being very embodied over the last 14 yes. years and, and very having this awareness. I, I never, ever eat more than I need to ever, but that was something I did as a younger person. And it was just, you know, I don't think about that in many ways. And I just know how good that feels in my life. And I want that so much for all the listeners and everyone out there to have this thing. And you've broken it down so, so beautifully and and so wisely. I, I really appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Where can they connect? What, what can they do to take their next steps? 
Oh my gosh. So I'll start first. If you want to really start getting into the practice of it, there's a workbook called the intuitive eating workbook. You might want to start there. If you'd rather start more with, you want to understand the research and, and the case studies, we have the fourth edition of intuitive eating coming out June, 2020. You can get it on pre-order right now. I'm pretty active on Instagram uh, at Evelyn Triboli, and I post pretty exclusively, I'd say 98% on intuitive eating. Um, and then there's our intuitiveeating.org website. So there's many resources out there. So come and visit me. <laughs> come and visit Evelyn and remember her wonderful laugh when you do. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on the Mindful Mama podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I love her perspective. And man, does she talk a lot. She got a lot in in that short amount of time. My goodness. So, so cool. So I'm wondering what you're going to take away from this. I really want to know. I'm curious about your takeaways. Sometimes it's hard to go. I know from the experience of listening to a podcast on your own to then jumping on your phone or your computer and reaching out to either the Facebook group or the Instagram and telling me what your experience was like. But I would really love it if you could. Those um, reach outs, they make such a big difference to me. And of course, if this episode has supported you in some way and you think it's going to support others, please share it. Take a screenshot of what you're listening to and text it to your friends and let them know that this is a powerful episode. Um, and then let me know. I want to know. I want to know too if you enjoyed it. And just a quick reminder that I will be opening a Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group soon. If you would like to work with me for five months, be one of my VIPs and have a transformative experience of your experience as a mother, uh, reach out to me. I would like to talk in person. Reach out to me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. You can say it's about group coaching. All right, that's it, my friend. I'm so grateful you were here listening. I have some amazing episodes coming for, up for you, uh, coming up. I hope that you're safe, I hope you're healthy and sound, and keeping your feet on the ground these days. That's what we're, what we're hoping for. Um, and I wish you lots of peace. Thanks so much for listening. Namaste. Are you a mom who wants to feel less stressed and enjoy motherhood more? Do you want to be calmer with your kids and be more present for life? I've gone from being stressed and yelling to become more grounded, more at ease, and have more enjoyable, cooperative relationships with my kids. I'm going to show you how to do it too. If you currently feel stuck or stagnant, this is for you. I've created a free downloadable audio training Mindfulness for Moms, the superpower you need. It will show you how to respond rather than react, how to let go of stress and feel more grounded in seconds, how to have a smoother day today and become more present for your kids. To get this absolutely free, simply visit the website mindfulmomguide.com. That's mindfulmomguide.com. Get started with mindfulness, the superpower moms need. I'll see you there.